Hi, this is Felix Cavalieri of the Rascals. You're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Enjoy. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I am Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is the great Tommy James, one of the most iconic artists of the rock era. Here's all you need to know. 23 gold singles, nine platinum albums, over a hundred million records sold. You know all of his hits, Hanky Panky, Moni Moni, I Think We're Alone Now, and many, many more. In fact, he's got a 40th anniversary set now with all 47 of his A-side singles. And his autobiography, Me, The Mob, and The Music, is a terrific snapshot of the music business in the 60s. I read it as soon as it came out, and there's going to be a movie. We're going to talk about that. In the middle, Tommy and I are going to do a song fest, as I do with all of my musical guests. We're going to play a bit of a bunch of his hits. We're going to talk about him. You'll get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you know that I like to feature a song of mine in each episode underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make the song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I have chosen the song, I'm So Glad, which is my reimagined version of Cream's song. Why did I choose this? Well, it's an iconic 60s song in an episode featuring an iconic 60s star. So I thought it worked. So Tommy James, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Nice to talk with you. How you doing? Everything is great. You know, you're a Jersey guy. I'm a New York guy. So we should get along really well in this thing. Only the tunnel separates us. That's right. All right. I got to ask you the question. I mean, you became such a superstar in the 60s. Everybody knows you. You've done so well. Looking back now on that era, what was it like? What are your impressions? Well, first of all, it was a wonderful time to make it in the record business because all the ducks were in a row. I'm a baby boomer myself. I graduated from high school in 65. And um, I was very fortunate because we basically made it right out of high school. And so suddenly you had 30 million baby boom kids graduating from high school in those years, set out into the world, rock fans to the max with money in their pocket. And that, of course, fueled the record business. And uh, it was a wonderful time to make it because the radio stations, TV, uh, the record business itself, um, newspaper, everybody was looking for the next big act. And things were just so alive in the 1960s. I was so very fortunate to make it during those years. And I also uh, was very fortunate to have the uh, attention of radio and the public 
long enough for us to morph into our various personas. You know, we went from being a garage band to being a pop band to being, uh, you know, records like Crimson and Clover and Crystal Blue. You had your psychedelic era. Yeah. And uh, then on from there. And then I, Shondells and I parted company uh, amicably. And uh, then I had a solo career. And we've been going, I can't believe, I, I look out in a, my concert crowd now and I see literally three generations of people. Uh, it's just amazing to me. I never in the world thought I'd still be uh, performing songs like Hanky Panky and Moni Moni uh, 60 years later. Uh, it just blows my mind. It's funny. One of the guys I had on the podcast was John Lodge from the Moody Blues. And he's another one, you know, came about in the same era as you did. And I asked him, I said, what was it like, you know, now that you've you've got 50 plus years of these songs? He said at the time, you know, we were hoping that we would last a few years. Yeah. You know, in fact, one of his friends said, OK, you're 19 years old. What are you going to do when you're 21? And he said, it's just amazing that they're still doing it 50, 60 years from then. It is. It, it absolutely is. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, it mystifies me constantly. I, I, I thank the good Lord and the fans for the kind of longevity uh, we've had, because as you say, this is a business that maybe gives you two or three years at the most. And uh, we've been doing it all these years. So I, I'm very thankful. All right. Were you one of the 10 million kids like me that got turned on to this whole thing with the Beatles on Ed Sullivan? Well, actually, I got turned on to Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan show. Right. I was nine years old. I had been playing a ukulele that I, my grandfather gave me when I was four. And when I was nine, I saw Elvis uh, on Ed Sullivan. The ukulele went out the window and I begged my mom for a guitar. And all I wa ever wanted to be was one of those rock and roll guys. And... Uh, uh, I started my first band when I was 12 in seventh grade and started playing for actual money when I was 13 and uh, in my little hometown of Niles, Michigan. And, you know, step by step, by the time I was out of high school, you know, Hanky Panky, which I had recorded in high school, became a hit record. So to me, it was just like sort of riding on an escalator. Uh, things just kind of got better and better. It's amazing. In fact, you know, I want to play Hanky Panky at this point. My baby dives the Hanky I was reading up a little bit in advance of talking to you, and I didn't know this, but Hanky Panky had actually been written by Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich and had been recorded by somebody else. So you kind of did a cover of it. Am I right? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, we had just signed a little label deal with uh, a local disc jockey in Niles. and. Um, I happened to be out in a nightclub on a Sunday afternoon uh, listening to the to the house band and they played they were called the Spinners and this is back in 1963 
And of course, I'm underage sitting there. And so I didn't want, uh, I just wanted to observe everything. And they played this song called Hanky Panky. And I saw what it did to the crowd. And they had requests for it. They probably played it six times that in that afternoon. And I, I said to the guy I was with, I said, you know, that's what we ought to do. That we sh And so I, we, we recorded it from memory. Really? Just from memory. All I remembered was my baby does the hanky panky. That's all you needed. <laughs> yeah. And um, we recorded hanky panky in a radio studio, a little studio at WNIL radio station in Niles, Michigan in 1963. And it was released in early 64. And, you know, it didn't really do much, didn't, wasn't blowing the doors down or anything. But we uh, got on the local jukeboxes and sold some records. And, of course, then uh, I graduated from high school in 65. And then I went on, took my band on the road, and we were playing little bars and stuff on the road. And right in the middle of my two weeks uh, in a little dumpy club in Janesville, Wisconsin, the guy gets shut down by the IRS for not paying his taxes and we get sent home. But that's how the good Lord works. Cause as soon as I got home, I got the call to change my life that this little fluky record, hanky panky that I had recorded three years or two years or three years earlier, uh, was suddenly sitting at number one in the city of Pittsburgh. So how did that happen? Tommy, was it like one disc jockey that just got behind it? Yes. That's exactly only in America. I've heard that story now at least three or four times from all different guests on this podcast. They just got lucky. Some random disc jockey in some place that they didn't even know yep. got behind the song. And then they bootlegged it. They 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 bootlegged, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, hanky panky on the little label it was on. And so they thought they'd clean up locally and uh, they couldn't keep it down. They couldn't keep the tooth toothpaste in the tube. And so it just kind of exploded all over. They tracked me down. I went there and uh, did local TV and stuff. And a week later, I'm in New York selling the master to uh, what well, ended up roulette records. But the, po the point was that that's what the 60s were like. Anything yep. could happen. Yep. And I, I, that's what was so magical about the 1960s record business. Yeah. They're, nowadays, of course, it's all gatekeepers and it's so restricted. Oh, very much. You know, they want to keep the riffraff out. <laughs> I would have been the riffraff. <laughs> That's right. Back then we wanted the riffraff in. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you mentioned roulette records and that was a big part of the autobiography that you did. Yeah. And Morris Levy, who was infamous in the record industry. You know, at that time in the mid 60s, me and all your fans, we, we had the above the line, Tommy James. We were listening to the music, the hits. We loved it. You were dealing with the below the line stuff. So talk a little bit about it. Sure Tell people what the music business was like back then. Yeah. Well, right from Pittsburgh, uh, I got a new manager and a new band. And uh, a, a week later, we're in New York City selling the master of Hanky Panky and uh, trying to get a, a, a national record deal. So uh, we got a yes from Columbia. We got a yes from RCA. We got a yes from Atlantic. You remember Kama Sutra Records? We got, we got a yes from them. And the last place that uh, we took the record to 
was Roulette Records, and which was a, an indie label, but they'd had a lot of hits. And so uh, the, the executives weren't there, so we just kind of dumped off the record. And I went to sleep that night thinking, wow, we're going to be probably with Columbia or Atlantic or one of the major corporate labels. Well, the next day, about 9.30, 10 o'clock, the phone started ringing. Uh, I'm staying at a hotel in Manhattan. And uh, it was all of the labels that had said yes the day before were calling one by one to say, listen, Tom, we got to pass. And I, I said, what do you mean you got to pass? I thought we had a deal. And Jerry Wexler up at Atlantic Records told me the truth that Morris Levy, the head of Roulette Records, had called all the other record companies and scared them, basically, <laughs> basically backed them down. And uh, of course, I wasn't sure why this could happen. And then we found out what Roulette was, you know, uh, that, well, the bottom line was that we were going to be on Roulette Records. It was the first offer I couldn't refuse, right? So we gradually, though, learned who we were rubbing shoulders with. Uh, Morris Levy, the head of the label, and Roulette Records were not only a functioning uh, indie label, but they were also a front for the Genovese crime family in New York. So that made life really interesting for us. Uh, while we're hanky-panking and moany-moanying, all of, you know, there's this very dark and sinister story going on behind us that we really couldn't talk about. Uh, some of the people in, you know, some of the distributors and promotion guys in the business uh, understood what Roulette was doing, what was going on up there, but most of the people didn't. And so, um, you know, but by the same token, we had tremendous success at Roulette. You know, that's the irony of, of this story, that in a sense, they made you a big hit, okay? Yes. Listen, if we had been with one of the corporate labels, I can tell you right now, uh, we would have been turned over to an in-house A&R man. Uh, there would have been a ton of, of uh, competition with the other groups. And we would have been lucky with a record like Hanky Panky would have been a one-hit wonder. Yeah. At Roulette, they actually needed us. They hadn't had a hit in almost three years. And they rolled out the red carpet. From a creative level, it couldn't have been better for us because we were the king of the hill at Roulette. And I, I know we would have never had the success at one of the other labels that we had at Roulette because we were it. Only one problem. They stole all your money along the way. One problem. That's right. <laughs> getting, paid was, getting paid was like taking a bone from a Doberman. You know, it just wasn't going to happen. And... Uh, so, you know, we realized early on that, you know, uh, mechanical royalties were just not going to happen. And so we had some decisions to make. Do we try to uh, get out of this contract? Do we, do we uh, try to go somewhere else or do we stick it out? Because we were having so much success there, one hit right after another. Plus the fact that it would have been a dangerous situation to try to leave. Oh, yeah. So uh, I, I I know we made the right decision uh, by staying there because in the end, of course, I get to tell the story. But we ended up with 23 gold singles on roulette. 
We had nine platinum albums and we did over 110 million records worldwide while we were there. So I, I know we made the right decision. It, it worked out for you. I'm sure along the way it was uh, touch and go many times, but that was the music business back then. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller. Live at Steel Stacks is the new five-song EP by my band, Project Grand Slam. It absolutely captures the band at the top of our game. Musicians and reviewers alike have praised the recording, saying things like captivating music, Project Grand Slam burns down the house, virtuoso musicians, and such a great band. You can stream live at Steel Stacks on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or any of the other streaming platforms. And you can download it from the PGS store. The links are all in the show notes to this episode. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so yet. You can do so and you can listen to our 100 plus episodes just by going to our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. So join me each episode as we go on a world tour to my listeners in 200 countries. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. All right, let's move on because I want to get to some of your other great music. Okay, we're playing right now underneath us, Moni Moni. And I love the story that I heard. You got to confirm this, that you found the name Moni Moni because you were looking out the window and you saw Mutual of New York, M-O-N-Y. That's, right. That's a true story. <laughs> it sounds like it was a press agent in the 60s. Doesn't it? Exactly. Well, the truth is, Richie Cordell, my songwriting partner, and I were up in my apartment in New York. We're at 52nd and 8th. And um, we couldn't come up. We had we had written this crazy party rock track we had done the track long before we had the lyrics and so we're looking for a, a sort of a silly girl's name like a sloopy or a bony maroney or something and uh, everything just sounded so dumb and so we threw our guitars down and uh, went out on the terrace and lit up a cigarette and, and we're looking and all of a sudden both of our eyes fall. We look across the street at, uh, at the Mutual of New York Insurance Company and the sign up above M-O-N-Y with a dollar sign in the middle of the O and it gave you the time and the weather. And we just started laughing. And, and because it was such an obvious money. I'd been looking at that thing for, I don't know, three years while I lived in this apartment and, and uh, couldn't believe it was like God just saying, Here's the title. And I, I've often said that if I, if we'd have been looking in the other direction, that song 
could have been, we were so desperate, it could have been, you know, equitable, something like that, you know, <laughs> met life. Uh, I, don't know. I love it. That's a great, great story. All right. I heard another story along the way that you, you got invited to, but you passed on Woodstock. Is that true? Yeah, it sure is. Um, we were in Hawaii at the time. This is 1969, summer of 69. And um, we were in Hawaii and we did, we had two shows. We, one show was in Hilo on the big island. And then two weeks later, we were in, in Honolulu. So we we're on Oahu and we were, the, the uh, promoter figured it was cheaper to keep us out there than to fly us back and forth and back and forth. So we were at a 21 room Spanish villa mansion at the foot of Diamond Head. And I get a call from my secretary in New York. And she said, listen, uh, Artie, Kornfe Artie Kornfeld was one of the promoters of the show. And he was also a friend of mine who's a producer. And uh, he said, she said, Artie was up and said they're having, they, you know, they'd like you to come back and do this this gig they're doing, say, it's really going to be a gig. It's up at a pig farm in upstate New York. I said, what? Did you say it's at a pig farm? And she says, yeah, man, they say it's going to be a big gig. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. You're asking me to leave paradise, fly 6,000 miles to a pig farm. I'll tell you what. If I'm not there, start without me, okay? And I'm laughing. And... Uh, so by Friday, we knew we screwed up really bad. They shut down the New York Thruway and all the networks are carrying the, the story. And of course it was Woodstock and uh, we didn't go. And I, I've, I've uh, over the years, I've probably gotten more mileage out of the story than if I'd actually gone. But uh, yeah, one of the great regrets of my career. All right. Well, listen, you, you win some and you lose some, but you're right. It's a great story. I love that. All right. So the next one we're going to play, this was kind of your psychedelic point when you did Crimson and Clover. Okay. And you had that little vibrato thing going on with the voice. Tell us about that. Well, Crimson and Clover was next to Hanky Panky, probably the most important record that we ever made. And the reason is because uh, it was all on the line with Crimson and Clover. I had started producing the group myself. We had no studio players or any outside help. It was all the Shondells with, with no outside help. And third, uh, it was a drastic style change for us. Uh, if we, if we, if we had failed at that, uh, if we had, uh, if Hanky, or excuse me, if Crimson and Clover had not made it, our career could have been over, because we were literally going from like money money to this very different sound of Crimson and Clover. Plus, FM radio had just come into ex ex 
existence playing rock and roll. You know, up until then, they were playing jazz and classical. And so all of a sudden, FM stations are playing rock and roll in prime time. And so uh, albums uh, were suddenly the moniker. Every, uh, the albums were more important. The singles were sort of an appendage to the, to the albums. And uh, so we had to be, you know, we were, we, it was the first time we were on the radio, uh, FM radio uh, with our album. You know, up until that time, we'd been a singles act. All singles, right. So uh, Crimson and Clover, everything was on the line with Crimson and Clover. And I came this close to blowing it. We had made the record in five and a half hours, start to finish. Uh, I was very proud of it. We, we felt it was really going to be a big hit. Uh, I, I did a rough mix in the studio because I wanted to play it because I was going to mix it the following week. So uh, I made a little seven and a half rough mix work tape that I basically mixed with my elbows, you know, I, and, and took it to Chicago where we were playing the next day. And I took it up to WLS Radio, which was the biggest station in the country at that time, up to my friend John Rook, who was the program director. And I played it for him, this little work tape. And he flipped out. He says, Tommy, that's a smash. He says, and Larry Lujak, they had just hired the disc, the jock that walked in. He was a real popular local jock. He said, would you play it for Larry? And I said, yeah. So as I'm playing it, he pushed a button and he taped my tape. And so we said our goodbyes and they both flipped out over the song. I get back into the car downstairs and the radio's on. And as I'm getting into the car, I say, world, I hear world exclusive on WLS. Oh, and I'm going, oh my God, he's playing the damn tape. He's playing the work tape. Oh no, I, I, Morris is going to kill me. I, I, I have just blown this whole marketing program that roulette was going to do and i i and on top of that i've insulted the other radio station wcfl jim stag uh, was so angry at me for giving the exclusive they were going to head head to head with wls both fifty thousand watt stations and so i get back to new york and jim stag from cfl sent a wreath of flowers to roulette on the condolences over the death of Tommy James at WCFL radio. And Morris is tearing his hair out. He said, what the hell did you do? And I I said, so I I figure I have blown Crimson and Clover. I have this magnificent record. I blow. Well, meanwhile, he started, Red Schwartz called up John Rook and said, let me, and told him, sorry, do you realize what you've done? He says, he'll have to play it when I'm going to start playing it every 20 minutes. And he broke Crimson and Clover out of Chicago, that little work tape, that rough mix. I never got a chance to mix the record. We had to release my rough mix. And to, honest to God, today, 50 years, 50 some years later, Crimson and Clover, the record that we all know, was a rough mix. I never got to remix that record. And it turned out to be the biggest record we ever had. Isn't that a fantastic story? I'm sorry to be so long-winded with that, but <laughs> no, that's a great. Story. You know, I had uh, cousin Brucey e. Morrow from New York on the show a couple of times, and he was telling me a story 
just like what you just mentioned, where he got exclusives on Beatle records. And when they first started playing the records on the air, all the other stations out there were taping the records. So they would get the oh. exclusive at the same time. Finally, he said, we had to adulterate the records, you know, by saying every 10 seconds, this is an exclusive on WABC, so that right. the other stations couldn't get the records. So you right, had right, right. you had kind of a reverse of that whole thing. Well, that's yep. these are great stories. You don't hear this stuff anymore. Well, that's just why the record was so important to us, because it changed our life. It, you know, everything after Crimson and Clover was it gave us the second half of our career. And there's no other single I can think of that we ever did that would have allowed us to make the jump from AM top 40 to FM album rock. You're right. You're absolutely right. OK, I want to do one more, which is one of my favorites, because when I had my band in high school back in the 60s, this was really? the song that we covered. Of course, we all had high school bands. Mine oh, was cool. called The Buccaneers. And we covered, I think we're alone now, because that's one of your greatest songs. Children behave, that's what they say when we're together. And watch how you play, they don't understand. And so we're running just as fast as we can. So give us the backstory, and I think we're alone now. By the way, what year did you graduate? I graduated high school in 68, so I was a couple of years right. after you. Okay, all right. Well, I think we're alone now was uh, our fourth hit record in a row, and it was brought to me by uh, my new producers, Bo Gentry and Richie Cordell, who were very good at what they did they you know making pop records and um when they brought me i think we're alone now it was a mid-tempo ballad it was not the record that we know but uh he played it Bo played it on the piano but you could hear that it was a hit uh, as soon as the chorus the hook came you, you knew that was a hit record but i learned so much from i think we're alone now because i learned the studio I learned all about AM records in a way I never would because I was involved in the production. And, um, uh, but it was uh, a record that uh, was too slow. We took it into the studio and Bo sang the demo. We did a demo over at Allegro Studios. And that's where I came up with the uh, eighth note a guitar peg, you know, the doom, 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 doom. That was, the, that was the great part of the song, man. That became the signature sound of the record. Right. And uh, so we took it back to Roulette. Morris loved it. He loved the record. And uh, so we went in and we actually made the record Christmas Eve, 1966. And what a Christmas present that was. We sped it up and uh, uh, just got it sounding a little hipper and uh, put it out. Uh, actually, it came out Christmas week of 66 and uh so we were all set up for 
to attack 1967. It was a great Christmas present. Yeah, it was a fantastic song. You know, your story reminds me, there was a Beatles song that Lennon wrote, Please Please Me, which he wrote at a much slower speed. It was kind of a Roy Orbison type of thing. And when they went into the studio, George Martin told the story about how he said, no, 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 you got to speed it up. And then it became, you know, the please, please me that we all know. I love that song. And you had the years to know that, you know, I think we're alone now, needed to be faster. Good for you. Right. Right. Spectacular. Well, we were very lucky. Bo and Richie, Bo and Richie, by the way, produced me from uh, right after Panky Panky on till Moni Moni. And um, so I owe them a great deal. And Bo and Richie were uh, the kings of four track, I used to call them. Isn't it amazing that you guys used to record four track? Now it's, it's amazing. Uh, it's the Beatles. 3, their, tracks. <laughs> some of their biggest hits. The Beatles were on four track. I know. Incredible. Hard to believe. In fact, you, did you used to do the editing where you slice the tape with a razor yes. blade and all oh, of that? Absolutely. I learned all that stuff. And of course, um four track was so problematic because you couldn't bounce to an adjacent track because there'd be leakage so you know you're you had to basically have a slide rule and a protractor to remember how to make records on four track you know you, it was it was very confusing and you really had to keep track of everything and yet the sound of all those four track recordings that you hear today still it was magnificent it's amazing but but the only thing about about four track was that the stereo mixes were terrible because you, you'd have you know basically everything on track one, and on track four you'd have the tambourine or you'd have right. the voice <laughs> over here and the and the music over here you know the sixties stereo early sixties stereo was horrible. Yep, yep. But you know what? It, I loved those mono records. Okay, the mono was great. Mono was because that's how they became hits. You heard the mono over AM radio. You know, I'm just wondering. I heard stories about uh, back in the day inside the studio. Some of the guys, you know, used to do uh, playback through what amounted to almost like a, a mini transistor radio because that's what the kids were listening to the music on, right? Transistor radios. It was called Oratones, Oratone speakers. And you'd listen mono through this three-inch radio speaker that was the worst crap you could imagine. But if it sounded, the idea was that if it sounded good over that speaker, it would sound great everywhere else. Exactly. Well, you know, even today, of course, the the technology has improved remarkably for everything. You you get 3,000 tracks on everything if you want, and the studios have these million-dollar speakers and everything. But every time I make a record, I ask for playback through my iPhone with the earplugs because I know that that's how people are going to listen to music these days. That's right. It's it's almost kind of self-defeating because today we have such an ability to make records sound good. You know, we've got every piece of outboard equipment in the world. You've got uh, just marvelous technology. And yet they're listening through through earbuds. Listen, you, you, you can't fight City Hall, right? That's just the way that no, people are right. And it's the same thing, you know, with uh, unfortunately, the world has come back or come down to streaming. That's the only thing that exists. I don't even know people that have CD players anymore. Well, that's true. But 
The one good thing, as far as I'm concerned, is that it has brought back the singles market. Yes. Uh, you know, these are all single song downloads and streams. And uh, I don't know that we'll ever make another album. Because what's the point? You know, it, it's it's all single songs. That's how you listen to music. It's true. You know, so it's uh, it's really an amazing. Uh, oh, I don't know. The cycle is complete. Well, look, you have been through the whole cycle. That's the amazing part, that you have survived and thrived for all these years and through all the different parts of the Thank cycle. You. There's not too many guys that have done that. I mean, I'm as amazed as you are, believe me. <laughs> I can imagine. All right, you're still doing your Sirius XM show, is that right? Yes, we've been doing it for five years. It's called Getting Together. It's on every Sunday from 5 to 8 Eastern Time. Uh, it's on channel 73, which is 60s gold. I'm not quite sure why they went from 60s on 6 to 60s gold 73, but I won't question it. It's, it was an executive decision. Um, but the point is, I love Sirius. I love the people up there. I love the uh, just the whole vibe. I think it's the hippest thing that an artist can do. I can't, when they came to me and asked me to do this show, I was a little scared. I had never worked that side of the microphone before. You know, as many uh, radio interviews as I did, I was never on that side of the mic. So um, uh, it was a little scary, but I fell right into it. They said, Tom, play anything you want. I said, uh, well, what do you, you know, he said, play anything you, any, anything you want, as long as it falls roughly in the 60s. And, uh, I said, well, okay. She's, and then they said, Tom, play a lot of your stuff too. I said, can I go to jail for that? <laughs> do I do I actually get an artist playing their own music on their own show? I mean, you know, isn't that, don't I get called before Congress or something on that? Uh, there's nothing better than that. No, nah, the satellite's too high. You know, you're not on the <laughs> ground. So, so uh, anyway, I get to play covers of my stuff as well as and take phone calls from the fans, get That's to great. get to announce our concerts all over the country. And, and the audience is fantastic. It's coast to coast on in both uh, all of North America. Plus, now with the app, it's all over the world. So it's an amazing way, uh, especially during COVID. It was an ama amazing way to stay in touch with the fans. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I love it. I love this. I love doing the show. All right. So I know you do uh, a residency from time to time out in Vegas. You're still playing, you're still out there performing. You got this 40th anniversary set that's either out or just about to be out. So, uh, what else is in the future for Tommy James? Well, our book, me, the mob and the music, which was an autobiography with about Three quarters of it devoted to our tumultuous and sometimes scary relationship with Roulette Records. Uh, I, I tell the story. Uh, is It's being turned into a film. And Barbara Defina is producing it. She produced Goodfellas. She produced Casino. She produced uh, Hugo with Martin Scorsese a few years ago. Uh, just a string of wonderful movies. And she's producing our film. Kathleen Marshall is directing. Uh, the screenplay has been written by Matthew Stone 
and uh, they are in the process of casting right now. I was going to ask you, who's going to play Morris Levy in that? I don't know. The two characters that have to be right are Morris Levy, who really is the star of the show, and me. And um, uh, I'm, I'm really going to have to let the grown-ups do this because uh, I'm my own worst enemy. These young casting directors are so hip and they, they know who's out there. And the amazing thing is so many of the young actors today that would be doing me back in the, in the 60s, are all, they, all, they also started out in rock bands. It's just amazing how many of the young actors started out in rock groups. And so a lot of them can play and sing. And, you know, Jamie Farr really raised the bar when he did Ray because he did his own vocals and sounded like Ray Charles. He, he uh, did his own performing. And so you can't lip sync anymore. It's got to be right. And you got to find somebody who can really play and sing and look like uh, who they're trying to uh, play. And and uh, the Morris Levy character is, uh, is so important. All right. Well, you, you need somebody that, that looks and sounds like Tommy James because you're the star. Well, Morris Levy really is the star of Me, the Mob, and the Music. And so anyway, I, it's fun watching all this come together. And uh, I'll tell you, one of, the, one of the scary parts is that you have to make sure on, we do a lot of scenes in the studio and you got to make sure that the equipment you're using actually was equipment from that moment in time. Because if you have, there's, believe me, there's a million geeks out there who will pick up on it immediately. If you're using a piece of equipment that didn't exist until 94, you know what I'm saying? I'm sure you're right. It's got to be accurate time-wise. All right. I want to wish you the best on this. Um, we have been talking here with Tommy James, the iconic Tommy James. And the fact that you've lasted so long and you've been at the top of the game is just remarkable. I want to thank you so much, Tommy, for being on this podcast. Oh, it was wonderful talking with you. Thank you. You bet. And uh, now we're going to play again my version of the Cream song, I'm So Glad, which started this episode. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.